the lockout continues, we're just going to pivot to Ted Danson. We'll be, we'll be doing a Ted Danson appreciation it's, podcast. It's worked for four different sitcoms. We're just pivoting to Ted Danson. Welcome back to Royals Weekly. Chief season is tragically over, which means Royal season has begun. Once they get back from the lockout, which is still in progress right now. Uh, so I'm your host, Marcus Mead. And joining me as always, a man whose liver should have its own Instagram, my brother, Mike. I named him Lloyd. We call him Lloyd the liver. And uh, Lloyd's in bad shape sometimes, but uh, he's a real fighter. <laughs> I like the idea of your liver becoming a, like an influencer, like an Insta celebrity mm, who like yeah, uh, nice. has his own personality. Of, you know, it's... Lloyd the liver wakes up in the gutter again. <laughs> again. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to be like Charlie from uh, Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Oh, perfect that, cop. Your that liver is, is Charlie cop. from. <laughs> That's right. The day man. Yeah. The day man. <laughs> yes, he is the day man. Anyway, let's forget about Mike's liver. On this episode of Royals Weekly, we'll spend most of our time talking Royals prospects with Alex Duvall of Royals Farm Report, but I want to start this episode with a little conversation about free agency. Once this lockout ends, a frenzy of free agency will occur to get everyone signed before spring training. Mike, we know the Royals aren't going to do anything significant, but putting aside that for a moment, what do you wish they would do in free agency with the free agents who are left? Well, I think it was the athletic that put out like a list of the top 70 free agents still available. Realistically, there's not a lot of those guys that the Royals are going to be able to go and get. So if you said, Hey, Mike, are they going to make an, uh, a move for an impact player uh, up or down? Yes or no over under 0.5 players. I would bet that they don't, but I would like to see them at least pursue or think about Conforto and, or Pineda. Those are kind of the two. And we talked about that the last time we talked free agencies before the free agent uh, period began. We talked about both of those guys. Conforto, I think, is interesting if if they had moved on from Benintendi. I think that would have been an interesting move, but I don't think they will. And I don't think they're going to try and play him in right field because they want Hunter Dozier to play there, I think. So I don't see Conforto fitting for the Royals, but I would like to see him in there because he's still relatively young. I think he's got a good uh, eye at the plate, and I think he still has a lot of hitting potential left in him. Um, Pineda is like the old stabilizing vet kind of guy who you know kind of what you're going to get as long as he stays healthy. Yeah, taking away the uh, foreign substances probably hurt Michael Pineda quite a bit, but he's he's he knows how to pitch, and on a young staff, he could be somebody who gives you a lot of innings. But again, I don't think the Royals want to take those innings away from those younger developing guys. So unless somehow Mike Miner is not with the Royals early on, I don't think they go get Pineda. Yeah, I think the Royals are in a place right now where monetarily, they're just not even interested in expanding payroll for this next year. And you got to wonder, is that a ramification of some of the moral decisions that they made, which I'm totally fine with? Like, I'm fine with the fact that they decided to pay minor league players throughout the, the COVID season when a lot of people weren't paying them, I, that they decided to keep on all personnel and all staff and then cut positions and things like that. I think it's well worth it if they can't go out and spend or whatever. But I think at the same time, Looking at the free agents available, there are guys who can help in small ways. I know they're still interested in expanding the bullpen. I'm sure they'll sign a couple of 
long shot bullpen arms or some guys who might go in there. I've seen Greg Holland mentioned as like bringing him back. <laughs> and I, the ways I've seen it mentioned wouldn't maybe be a terrible idea if they didn't pitch him as often as they did last year. Probably it's a good idea to just move on from Holland. But if they do bring him back, I hope they're interested in pitching him like not too many consecutive days, really trying to limit his innings and his impact. But Pineda is a good, a good signing that sort of finding that veteran starting pitcher. There aren't too many guys like him left in the free agent pool. Too many guys who are like, this guy kind of fits their window and budget and sort of everything that they're trying to do, which is they're not going to, they're not, they're not out there to sign a guy long-term. We know that they're not out there to sign a guy for big money. Even if it's on a short contract, they're not giving somebody North of, you know, 15 million, even for a one-year deal. And so we're talking about somebody in the eight to eleven million dollar range for maybe, maybe two or three, maybe, <laughs> maybe for yeah. maybe two or three, like on a prove it or like a a Padeta type deal. That's like, hey, you're thirty four. You know, we're we're I guess he's he's probably still in his early thirties, but they might be looking for somebody who's like mid thirties. We can give you a couple more years to be a stabilizing force, and then we're going to move on. Um, I don't know but, if they're now, even willing. Conforto's to a little bit different than that because he's younger. Oh yeah, Conforto's um, a totally different ball game because. He he's a hot ticket item. Like he's going to have multiple teams interested in getting him because he is a good hitter. He's got the good eye at the plate, not a great outfielder, but he's not going to kill you in the outfield. Um, and so he's going to have a hot market. The Royals won't even be sniffing on him. I don't think probably even though they not. should, they should think about it. I think they probably have the money, but I don't think they're going to be interested because you sign a guy like Conforto, then you might as well start trading away some of these other prospects who you need to find places for. Because if you sign a guy like him, he's not taking a contract for less than three years, I got to imagine. And so you better have an op- a plan in place to have him playing every day for four years, at least, right? Because other than that, he's not, he has a, his pick of, a, of various contracts, I'm sure. And so why would he take one where they're like, Hey, we're going to give you two years and you know, you may or may not play every day. No, no, no. He's, he's taking an opportunity where he thinks he's going to play all the time and he's going to have the ability to sign a long-term ish contract. And so if they sign somebody like him, they got to start thinking, where do we trade X, Y, Z, where do we trade Kyle Isbell? Where do we trade Vinny Pasquantino? All these guys who sort of are in place right now, who it's going to be really tough to fit them in already. You put another guy in the outfield, you just close down another position option for somebody else. Yeah. I wish they would have entertained trading Benintendi. Don't know why we didn't do that. Well, this is his last year. So, you know, who knows? He's gone after this year anyway. So, yeah, but I, we can't, we don't have immediate space in the outfield or long-term space necessarily because <laughs> which is know, weird hundred dozers all... got to play somewhere you know that's that's the thing we also don't have like long-term solutions in the outfield either. Yeah, i guess it's like i guess we're, we're saying just the outfield we don't have space at the corners we've right. got long-term space in center for days baby well like, we don't we, after we, taylor you could say we have long-term space in the in the corners, but we don't have long-term answers in the corners. Not ones that not, you feel really, no. really yeah. good about. Like you feel pretty good about Isbell. You know that he's probably going to be a, an above average major, like definitely above replacement level. He'll probably get you two to four wins above replacement in a year playing left or right field. Like David DeJesus type. Yeah, a very much like that. You feel okay about him. Beyond that, eh, you don't feel great about any of your outfield options. And so... Who knows, you know, Nick Lofton, maybe, and that, and that sort of thing, maybe they move him to the outfield, but putting a position player onto this team creates even more of a mess and log jam than currently exists. And right now there's currently a 
pretty messed up log jam in their system as they have some hitters with tremendous potential ready to come up who don't have places to play. If you like what you're hearing, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on whatever platform you use. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing helps people find the show and helps us build a larger community. If you leave us a five-star rating and good review, we'll make sure to give you a shout out and read a snippet of your review on the next show. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Royals Weekly. For this episode's Spotlight segment, we're very lucky to be joined by the editor-in-chief of Royals Farm Report and the host of the Royals Farm Report podcast, Alex Duvall. Alex, I know you do other things too. I can't think of the name of the other podcast you host. Say it for me because I listen to it all the time, but I just can't think of the name of it. Yeah, I do. Um, I host the Royals Review Radio podcast for Royals Review Radio. So yeah, yes. I'm keeping myself busy with the lockout. Yeah, yeah, you might as well because we need, we got time to fill with uh, no baseball news, no nothing. So um, I ended up also writing a- an article today. Oh, sorry, I ended up writing an article today about road trips. I was literally like, I have, I am out of ideas. So I was like, what if we planned a road trip? And that's what, that's what. Well, I, I say I wrote it today. It came out today. I spent the other night writing it because I literally could not think of anything else. So I was like, let's let's figure it out. So. That's how a lot of bad ideas in college start. Like, hey, yeah. what if we went on a road trip? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's I saw a bad that idea. today. I thought that was a very fun idea. I was like, oh, yeah, this is a nice thing to think about when it's freezing here. It's about to snow like a ton. And might as well think about what it's going to be like in summertime, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I thought that was wonderful. Um, Alex's top 50 was a collaboration of him and the rest of the Royals Farm Report writers. If you haven't been to the site, go to Royals Farm Report, read the top 50 as it came out, read it, the, the chunks that he submitted. I was following that daily as they were coming out since baseball news is just so spare. It was a, it was my lifeline for stuff to read for baseball. So give that a read. If you haven't so far, listen to the podcast where they discuss it. It's wonderful stuff. We're going to ask Alex a few questions from, from Mike and I, just to get some more perspective on this top 50, which we don't trust anyone more than Alex and the people at Royals Farm Report to think about this farm system. So I get the honors to ask the first question, and I want to start globally because I know it's we can often talk specifically about players, and we're going to do that in a little bit. But I want to look a little bit at the list as a whole and just ask, how should Royals fans feel about this top 50 and about this farm system where it is right now? Good. Um, Baseball America, there's a thing, or maybe it was just one thing of research they did where they, they went back and they – they basically said at any point in time, how many big leaguers does the average farm system have in it? And I think the number they came to was like 33. So like at any point in time, the average farm system will have 33 players who reach the big leagues in any capacity, right? And I think the Royals have right around 45 to 50, probably 45 is a fair number, guys who I think could make it. So it's deep. They have, a, they have more players than the average system, I think. And I think when you look back at, like in 2017, granted, we were new at this. We were starting to get our feet under us and learn how to better identify these, these guys in the minors. But a guy like Corey Toops was in our top 30. Corey Toops never sniffed the big leagues. So I think over the last four years, what you've seen is a growth from, yes, you have the high-end talent. Like you have the Bobby Witt Juniors, the Melendez, the Prados. But you also have a depth of talent of guys who could very easily make the big leagues in, in a role capacity where in the past, did they have some of the top end talent a little bit? They didn't have any of the Bobby Witt juniors, but they also had almost no depth. Like we were, we were scrounging for guys to put in the back half of our top 30, much less to fill out a top 50. And now what you see is a, the top end talent, but B it is so deep of guys who could contribute at some capacity in the future and I think if you go over to fan graphs, Eric Longenhagen does a good job where 
he doesn't put a number on his list. I mean, he doesn't have a number of how many guys he's going to rank in each system. It's how many guys does he think could contribute. So, like, the Colorado Rockies list came out a few weeks ago, and it had 36 players on it. Last spring when he did the Royals, it had 54. So, if you look at, like, the Royals compared to a terrible system like the Rockies, that's 20 more players who could, who could impact the big league team in any capacity, which I think speaks volumes to the player development um, progression that the Royals have made here in the last four or five years. I think you can see that you just pick guys from even the bottom half of the top 30 from this list. And you say, where would they have been, you know, four or five years ago? I think I'm going to ask you a little bit later about Drew Parrish, a guy who, if he had been there in the Nolan Watson, Foster Griffin, you know, in that time period might have been the number one pitcher in the system, right? Like, um, and so he's 20th on your guys' list right now. And so to think about how deep this system, this system goes right now, I think is really impressive. Also looking at the whole, do you see any sort of positional strengths, weaknesses as you sort of look at this entire top 50, things that stand out to you as, as things that the Royals are doing well or areas that need a little work in the farm system? They've done a really good job acquiring two different, I think, skill sets. One is infielders that can impact the big, a big league lineup, and another is big arms that could fill out a big league bullpen. And if you look at the infielders, you're talking about you already have at the big league level in some capacity this year, you'll have Bobby Witt Jr., Emmanuel Rivera, Nicky Lopez, Whit Merrifield, Adalberto Mondesi. And then right behind them, some of their better prospects are Michael Massey, Nick Lofton, Michael Garcia, even a guy like Clay Dungan, I think in the past is a top 20 prospect in the system. I don't think Clay Dungan's a big league regular, but he could, he could play against righties, you know, three days a week. So they've done a great job of building infield talent that, that, that could fill out a range of positions. And then you also have these arms, Will Klein, Dylan Coleman. They have a ton of them. We, we talked about a few of them in, in the list, but that list even – like we like a guy we didn't even mention. I don't think we ranked Casey Kalich in our top 50. Or maybe he made the top 50, but he's at the back end of it if he made it. And I've got it pulled up right here. I can look really quick. Yeah, Casey Kalish did not make our top 50, and he's a guy I think can pitch in the big leagues. So they've done a good job of assembling arms that could fill out a bullpen, which if you think about it from a, a roster-building standpoint, you've got to pay a free agent to fill in somewhere on your roster. It is really hard, almost impossible, to have a roster completely made up of guys that are homegrown. Now, I think they're close. Like It really is kind of impressive how close they can get, but – if you got to spend a little extra money because a starting pitcher is what you need and you've filled out your bullpen on your own, well, that's great. You've done a good job of that. You saved yourself money there. So, um, you know, just because it's big league relievers, I think they've done a better job stacking up on doesn't mean they're not doing a good job because five years ago, like you said, Foster Griffin was our best pitching prospect. And now Foster Griffin, who's essentially the same guy is like in the honorable mention section with maybe a little bit of a shot to contribute to big leagues, but his window has kind of surpassed him even, which is it speaks way more to the system than it has Foster Griffin specifically. Yeah. And I'll throw in, I'll throw in a guy that you didn't, I don't even think you mentioned there is my favorite Dylan Coleman. I love Dylan Coleman and he's going to be, I think a great bullpen arm for us. So I want to talk to you about one spot in particular, as we start talking about players here, the only spot on the Royals Farm Report top 50 rankings that surprised me a little bit was Angel Zerpa at eight. Um, explain why Zerpa deserves a top 10 spot uh, that you guys think. So what do you think about that? I was dead wrong about him. I thought he was a reliever for sure. And part of that has to do with the fastball. 
part of that has to do with, I didn't think his delivery built in any deception. We had a scout that used to work for the angels on, on our podcast last off season, a gentleman named Travis ice and Travis came on and we kind of talked about Zerpa a little bit. And I was like, I don't see it. And I know the Royals added him to the 40, but I was like, I don't get it. So he was at the back half of our top 30. I was wrong. I was dead wrong. You talk about pitchability. He's right up there with Jonathan Bolin with the best pitchability, the best command, the best mix of pitches in the system. His fastball got up to 95 to 97 at points in time this past summer. The slider is a very good breaking ball offering. The changeup is going to keep righties off balance. There's really nothing that he does that you don't love except what throw 99. Like what, I mean, what, how much more do you want from a, what is he 22 years old? Right. So I think when it comes to Zerpa, you've got a 22 year old who's already made his big league debut. And I got to tell you, like there are, there are times when you watch a player pitch and you can tell there's, there's a few things you can tell initially. And the number one thing I think you can get from watching a pitcher in the big leagues is will his fastball play? And I think Daniel Lynch, when he came up and made his big league debut, he looked good. His curveball looked good, the slider, right? But the fastball got hit a little bit, even in that first outing. And then as he the, the pitch tipping went on, that was a little bit different. But even Daniel Lynch, I think the biggest knock against him right now is how good can the fastball be? With Zerpa, you saw the swings he was getting in the big leagues. It was like, oh, he's clearly got some sort of deception to his delivery that is keeping hitters. And again, throwing 95 anymore is just – it's, it's maybe a tick above average, but not much. And there was an extra oomph to his fastball that I think I, I don't realize he had, even in high A, because again, high A hitters, anytime you throw 95, 96 with good breaking stuff, like you're going to be to a certain extent dominant. He got to double A, he got to the big leagues, and that fastball kept playing. It kept playing up. And I think that was the biggest eye opener for me is he had everything else already, but if the fastball plays where I think it will, he's going to be a big league starter, like probably at the end of this year. And I don't think he'll have to leave the rotation. Awesome. And I, that, that means I'm going to have to go back and look at, at Zerpa and his the pitching that he did in the big league level. Cause all I remember they gave him an extended look in spring training. And I was like, why is he still with the big league club? And, and I saw him through a couple of times there and I was like, man, he's got some good stuff, but I wasn't wholeheartedly impressed. So I'm going to have to go uh, check that out. Cause the news had come out that he was on the 40 man and it was all that stuff. So, and he, okay. and he did add some velocity in the last 18 months or so. Right. Like it, I, I don't remember him or reports being that he was 95, but I remember seeing it in the majors once he got there. So in that gap for that weird year we had with COVID, he must've added a, a tick or two because throwing 95 as a lefty, you usually get noticed. I mean, and so I would have expected to hear more about that. Well, the report I had on him back from 2019 was topping 92, 93. Okay, that's what okay. I thought. And then yeah. he topped 97 this year. So that increase in velocity, not to like go back and explain why he was so ranked so low on our list, but that velocity matters. Like it is the number one predictor of future success. And as much as people love to be like, well, does he throw strikes? It's like, well, the number one predictor is velocity and he did not have any of it. So the added velocity is kind of the part of the explanation of his jump so far up into our rankings. Awesome. Well, and, and to think about him as like, okay, well, you already had all these other guys that, and you weren't even thinking about Zerpa. And now I kind of equate that to the Carlos Hernandez thing at the big league level last year. Nobody's really talking about well, what can Carlos Hernandez bring us? He might've brought us the most from those young arms. So uh, that's awesome to see from uh, Zerpa, man. We'll be looking for that this spring. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully we will. <laughs> um, 
So another question that I had for you, uh, there are three guys in the top 30 that you guys have that are all kind of local guys. Um, can you tell us why Royals fans should be excited about Jensen from Park Hill, if I'm not mistaken? And then Webb from Lee Summit North, what, what? Okay. And then Kaderna from Blue Valley Southwest. Webb is a kid who I saw. And I know, and I know uh, Nate Webb, by the way. He, uh, he was, I coached him in football when I was like my first or second year coaching football uh, in the program. So. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't know that. He, he's a good dude. And he is a guy, I remember the reports came out on him after a summer of, was he like working with like laying concrete or something, whatever it was. So he goes and he works for a, or for, for an off season, he comes back and all of a sudden he's added all his velocity, right? Like he always threw hard, but all of a sudden he's like 95, 97. It's like, Oh, okay. So now you've again, big fastball. You've at least put yourself in the conversation. And when he went out this year, it was like, okay, that's 95, 98, but that is like, it's got some extra zip to it. Like the spin, the efficiency, the delivery, the arm slot, like there's some, there's some oomph on that fastball that maybe wasn't there before. And then he hit triple digits with high A to to end the season. And I think the Royals were right putting him on the 40. Like you get a guy like that because he commands the ball pretty well for putting in a lot of effort to his delivery uh, on the back end of it anyway. So you're talking about a guy who hits triple digits with with a slider. It is so sharp that it almost looks like a cutter, and then it sweeps with like like a foot, right? So it's 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 a bigger cutter because he throws it so hard. I think he can help out in the big league bullpen like later this year. Honestly, Carter Jensen hits the ball harder than just about any high school kid I've ever seen in person. Yeah, uh, he, I remember you saying that. He hit a ball off of high school game I was at. Lefty threw him a curveball outside. And he met it out front, and he had a line drive off the right center field fence that never really got more than like 10 feet off the ground. If you would have elevated it at all, he would have hit it. There was like a – so behind the fence, there's like this batting cage back there, and then like like the railroad tracks. He would have hit it over the railroad tracks. He hit it so hard. And I think that's part of the reason where his power numbers didn't meet the exit velocity in Arizona. He has such a line drive, contact-oriented swing – he's not elevating the ball to hit these mammoth home runs. And I think in instructs, we started to see a shift in that. He posted a few videos where you could tell there was an intent on getting under the ball a little bit to elevate that baseball. If he elevates, he's going to hit 30 home runs because he has so much raw power that I think people maybe don't see it because the home run tallies aren't there, but the exit velocities are super impressive. So I think he's going to be a guy to watch for sure. And Ben Kaderna, I don't know what else to say about this kid. Like, yeah. sky's the limit. I mean, I, we 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 mentioned it last summer. Like, wouldn't really surprise me if he was flirting with triple digits at the end of 2022, and he's already hitting 99 with regularity, according to the guys that Perfect Game interviewed. So, that kid, uh, you talk about like projectability, and and I don't like projection, and there is not a better example in the system of a guy where literally his physical body will allow him to do whatever he wants. The ceiling is literally limitless. It's just a matter of how much of that can he grab in his development with the Royals. And real quick on Jensen, do you see him staying behind the plate? Because I know we're stacked kind of at catcher in our system. And is his bat going to play a lot faster than his catching ability? Um, I've heard very mixed reviews on some of his catching stuff, but strong arm. Um, So what do you think? So I think I like I agree with what the Royals do typically is they leave a guy in their most valuable position as long as possible. So like they, they've extended starting pitchers through the upper minors that they knew were going to be relievers. 
They've let guys catch they knew would get out from behind the plate. They, they let guys play shortstop that they knew they'd have to move off shortstop, right? So I think Carter Jensen will catch for a while, like maybe the next two years. I do not think he's a catcher at the big league level. Um, there's just too many guys ahead of him. Like you said, it's a log jam. And if you have a bat like that, just let him go hit. And, and, and honestly, I'd probably, for him specifically, would do that now, get him out from behind home plate and just go let him hit. But I, I agree with their overall philosophy is let him catch as long as possible. And then if he makes it as a catcher, he's extremely valuable, right? He, that just adds value to his, to his profile. But no, I think he'll move out from behind the plate long term. Okay. I love that you mentioned the, the notion of him working on getting the underside of the ball. When I watch a guy like Bobby Wood Jr. hit, I almost see an intent to hit, to, to get that underside of the ball so frequently. You can watch it if you see enough of his at-bats. You can just see it. It's like he only, he's only looking at the bottom half of, of the ball, it seems like, because he's always under it. And that's really going to set Jensen apart because you're right. He puts the bat on the ball so hard. He barrels the ball so frequently. It's really interesting to see. Um, I'm, I got a question. I, I said I would mention him earlier and I need to because I, I just love diamonds in the roughs. So I love like under the uh, deep cut guys. And so I want to bring up Drew Parrish a little bit, a guy who got lost in the wash of all these other pitching prospects a little bit from that 2018 class, but had a ton of success last year in minor league baseball and has had success basically everywhere he's gone in minor league baseball. And so what are we thinking in terms of the hype around these other guys are, what are we thinking about Drew Parrish in relation to his ceiling? Where is he going to end up? He doesn't throw real hard, but has that command that really can set some guys apart. Is he going to be what we maybe thought Chris Bubich could always be if his command were a little bit better, or is he like a four or five starter? Is that his ceiling? Yeah, I think the ceiling best case scenario, he's Jason Vargas, which Jason Vargas carved out a great career for himself. I don't think Drew Parrish is that. I think his ceiling is that of a back-end starter. But I think there's also a, a higher likelihood that he reaches that ceiling than most players. Like, I think it's very well within reach for him. He is not the same kind of pitcher as Francisco Liriano. I'm not comparing the two pitchers. But he's almost got like a little hitch in the back of his delivery where Liriano would go back and he had like this little funk that he had with his, with his arm. And then he would bring it forward. And it just adds a little extra deception because there's so much going on. And Parrish has that a little bit. Like when he goes back, there's like this little hitch. There's like this little thing that happens that I think throws hitters timing off. So he actually topped at like 95, which is pretty good for a guy like that. But Chris Bubich, we've seen hit 96 in the big league. So I don't expect him to pitch there. His changeup probably isn't quite Chris Bubich's, but I like his curveball better and he commands the ball better. Like Chris Bubich for a thumbing lefty really doesn't command the ball well at all. Um, walks way too many hitters for guy that throws that slow on average. And Drew Parrish does not. Drew Parrish spots up much more like a Jason Vargas uh, than a Chris Bubich. So he's somewhere in between. He's got – he doesn't have the stuff Bubich has, but he's got better command of his pitches, more like Jason Vargas. So I think he can start in the big leagues. I don't think he's going to be a number three even. Like if he's the fourth best starter in your rotation, I would be surprised. But if he can start in the big leagues – and give you six, seven innings and, and pitch to a three and a half to low to low four ERA, I wouldn't be surprised. And there's value in that, especially for a guy who was what, was he like a ninth round pick or something like that? So yeah, there's value in that. Yeah. And, and for a guy like him, I always feel like for guys like that, durability then becomes your biggest asset. 
You know, if you're a guy who's going to be the fifth guy in the rotation, you have to pitch a lot of innings. You have to stay healthy. You have to be available whenever they need you. Yeah. So that's kind of, I think that's kind of the key for him. That and consistency. I think coaches really want to know that, you know, you're not going to go out there and put up a 10 spot and hurt their in the first inning and hurt their bullpen and things like that. You got to be, I mean, as seemingly not very valuable as Mike Miner has been for the Royals in this most recent stint, you got to be that kind of pitcher, that guy who's going to go out and give them six innings. Even if it's four runs, it's not eight runs, you know? Um, and so I think that's going to be his role hopefully uh, someday. And, and there's a lot of, like you said, a lot of value in that, I think. All right. Last question. Then we're going to get you out of here, Alex, to go, uh, you know, rock your, your young, your young child to sleep or something. Um, looking at the thing, the, this list as a whole, again, um, who from the list do you imagine we'll see in the big leagues this year in 2022? First, how many, and then two, who, who, who from that list are we going to see? Uh, well, let's, let's look at, it. I think Bobby Wood Jr. is a lock. MJ Melendez at some point is a lock. Nick Prado at some point is a lock. With Jonathan Boland, the health is always a concern with a guy coming off Tommy John. Talent-wise, he's there, but let's let's see about the injury. I think there's room for Vinny Pasquantino. Uh, Angel Zerpa obviously has, as you know, he's already been here. Alec Marsh, much like Boland, it's injury dependence, but, you know, we'll see. Let's see who else. Jonathan Heasley, obviously, we'll have a shot. He's already been there. Michael Massey is an outside shot. I don't see it this year, but I think he's capable. Will Klein, Dylan Coleman, for sure. Drew Parrish, maybe. Uh, he's probably going to start the year at AAA, so he's, yeah. he's just a call away. Veneciano, maybe in the bullpen. Daniel Tillo, for sure, has a chance. Uh, Nate Webb being on the 40, he's got a shot. Man, I'm looking at, like, there's a lot of these guys. I think I mentioned it, you know, 12, 12 or 14 guys. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that number was more like 20. I mean, looking at some guys in the back half of the list. Oh, right. Like, would you you, you got to imagine Clay Dungan might get a, a call here or there. Some of these pitchers, uh, Zach yeah, or I mean, Josh Dye, wouldn't be surprised if he finds a way to the major leagues at some point. Yeah. Brewer Hicklin, would you be surprised if they needed no. an extra outfielder, an athletic outfielder? I mean, there's, there's a lot of these guys on the list that really are capable. And that's kind of what we talked about early on right, is, is they have the guys capable of stepping in if necessary. Um, they, they've got that depth. So I think you're looking at, like, potentially 20 guys because I mentioned on our, on our podcast, it was like 14 of our top 18 prospects almost surely will appear at AAA at some point this year. So you're talking about 14 guys off the bat that are one step away. Now, where's their room on the 40? Well, you know, that's, that's always a conversation. But that's, that's a lot of guys that are close. So I think you're looking at a year where – at a minimum, 10 of these guys are going to be in the big leagues in some capacity. And then it's a puzzle, right? Where do they fit? Which of these guys do you have to move to go get a piece that you don't have at present? Um, but it's going to be a fun year. There's going to be a lot of young players being revolved through Omaha on that I-29 corridor. Yeah, that, the, I think the, the AA and AAA teams are poised to be extremely exciting again this year, especially at AAA right away. I mean, you could see, you could see some serious talent in, in Omaha this year. So you could have, you could have a lineup in Omaha legitimately as top heavy as the big league lineup because Pasquantino, Melendez, Prado, and um, Bobby Witt Jr. could legitimately all start the year in AAA Omaha with a Clay Dungan, with an Emmanuel Rivera. I mean, you, you name the outfielders. I like got that, that lineup could be in Sulu Matias potentially even like that lineup could be like a real issue at Omaha. If they, if, you know, spring training kind of you know, screws these guys out of a, out of a big league spot, like they, they, that could be a real problem for AAA pitchers. 
Yeah, and you think Double A could have Nick Lofton, it could have uh, Mike Massey, it could have, you know, I don't know where if they're going to be that aggressive with Peyton Wilson. I doubt it, but, you know, there are a lot of guys who really can swing the bat who could be in a double the two, you know, the, the top, the top of the Royals farm system right now is really exciting. And so, yeah, don't get that MILB.TV subscription ready because it's going to be fun this summer. Uh, we know the minor leagues will be playing, right? This isn't like a, their, their season's not threatened. So we want to thank you so much, Alex, for joining us. So informative. I'm so glad we got a chance to talk about the, really the rest of the top 50 because so people, so many people focus on that top four right now for the Royals uh, that it's great to hear about guys who are further on down the list. So uh, thank you so much. We'll, we'll have you back again. You are the only guest we have ever had Alex, uh, because your insight is so that's, that's a, that's an honor right that's there. An honor. <laughs> and we went the whole time and you didn't mention Daryl Collins once. I know. Right? So I thought you were so in love with him for sure. You were going to get Daryl Collins in there somehow. No, I had to hedge no. my bet a little bit. I've been I've been running the parade all over town. I'm <laughs> at least if I don't mention him here, I can go back. It's like, well, I didn't mention him there, so I gotta hedge my bet a little bit. Now his agent got his money's worth, I'll tell you. <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, thanks, Alex, so much. We'll, we turned down Dayton more. He he wanted this slot. We gave it to you because we know he would learn more. So um, <laughs> uh, we'll see you around uh, again sometime soon, and we'll check back in when you guys do your midseason top fifty-two. Thanks. Right on. Thanks, gents. On our rundown, it says just says the lockout. We're supposed to talk about the lockout now. And honestly, I have no real good way to introduce that other than maybe like a, a fart sound or a, a, poop, a poop emoji. If you guys could see what we're doing, maybe I'll just put a put a poop emoji in here. Uh, the lockout is not going well. Who thought it would? Oh, Rob Manfred thought it would. But uh, besides, besides who must be the dumbest man in the world, who thought that the lockout would go well? And it is going as poorly as, as people expected. Players are pissed. Owners, I don't know what the hell they're doing. Uh, but it's, it's becoming increasingly clear that they aren't participating in good faith discourse and good faith negotiation. Since we last had an episode, since we last broadcasted, uh, the owners have, or the players have come up with multiple proposals and counter proposals. The owners seem very unwilling to participate in by including their own proposals, by countering, by even coming to the negotiating table. And so, and since then, they have also decided to seek the help of a federal mediator, uh, which I find interesting. But the players rejected that and said, why don't you just negotiate with us? Pretty fair position. The good news is it looks like the media is really portraying this much better than they have in labor issues in the past. And the owners are taking a beating as a result, which is good. That's exactly what should be happening. Mike, what are your thoughts on the lockout where it stands right now, February 9th, we're going to miss spring training, the start of spring training. That's already been decided. Yeah. Where do you, where do you think we stand on the lockout? That really, uh, that really came out today officially, but we kind of already knew it that the beginning of spring training is going to be affected by this. And, And actually for the Royals, that means quite a bit because they have so many young prospects that are pushing for spots in the majors right now, especially position players. Um, a lot of the pitchers that were prospects at least got a look last year, but you know, the, those guys that are off the 40 man, they'll be able to play in the minors still, but if they were put onto the 40 man, a la uh, MJ Melendez, then they cannot, they can't, they, they can't play. And so how, how are you supposed to get a look at a guy to see if he's going to break camp with the major league club if they aren't in spring training i don't really know but yeah the lockout's just absolutely ridiculous and i am glad to see that at least it started to shift i think early on we saw a lot of the same both sides ah the players and the managers can't get together when really the players were 
out there trying to get something done. Uh, they gave some concessions on things. And you have to, one thing I think it's always important to remember in this, it's always important to go back to this. This never had to happen, right? Never. Did not have to happen. Owners could end it right the, now. Yeah, the owners could stop this today and we would go back to the way it was last year. It it does not have to be happening. The owners chose to do this ostensibly for their stated reason, which was to spur negotiation. They chose to do this to push the parties to the negotiating table. And then the owners never went to the negotiating table. Not really. They didn't really go to the negotiating table. So you can't say, oh, we're doing this so we can spark negotiation and then do nothing for three months. So To me, this just speaks to the fact that they aren't actually interested in good faith and behavior and negotiation. Mm-hmm. Like they must have an ulterior motive that we're not seeing as a public or that as a public makes no sense to us, right? Because if they, if they really wanted a deal, if they really wanted to like get things done, you would say, if you looked at their sort of behavior throughout the course of this, it just cannot add up to, oh, this looks like a group of people who want to get a deal done, who are concerned about the potential loss of game time. It doesn't. And that's what scares me. Like, I still see people out there like, ah, this is fine. We're going to miss a week of spring training. They'll find a deal. And that, to me, that's the most likely outcome, probably. The thing that scares me is if you look at their behavior up to this point, I don't care what they say. Look at their behavior up to this point. Does it scream that they're interested in starting baseball on time? Does it scream that they're really concerned about missing regular season games? It doesn't to me. To me, I look at the owners and I see a group of people who are so invested in winning short-term battles that they're willing to sacrifice long-term viability because they don't care. In the long term, in the long run, we're all dead. So why do they care that in 20 years their profits might be declined? They may have sold the team or they're all really old. Maybe they'll be dead. Like they, they don't have to care about the long-term viability of the game. And so this is what scares me about them. That they could very much be behaving or they could very much be operating under an ulterior set of motives that we're just not privy to. And their actions seem to indicate that that's the case. Well, I think what a lot of them have seen is the skyrocketing value that baseball teams as investments are what we call value investments. It's the value of the club itself that is the investment, not the revenue that the club gets, right? And so when they make these decisions, they're making them based on how can I increase the value of my club in the short term, like you're saying. So, you know, legacy ownership doesn't really exist anymore in the game of baseball. So, yeah, they are looking for short term gains. If I can turn this, you know, whatever I bought it for and get a hundred and or, you know, 200, 300, 400% return in five years or 10 years by doing things like this, they're going to do it every time. Um, and so I'm, I'm glad the media isn't selling their bullshit anymore, or at least aren't as much selling their bullshit anymore. And that you're the best thing the players union could do. And it's very obvious that they did this. They told the players get out there on social media and explain exactly what's happening. And And the players went and did it. Yeah. That's the big difference between now and 94, right? Like the players aren't letting the media set the narrative by themselves. We also have much more, I think, savvy, sports writers now than maybe we did back then at outlets like fan graphs and the athletic who are much more savvy to the sort of, it's not just stenography over there. They're not just carrying the owner's water. And so like, yeah, I agree with you. It's just, it's, they've done a great, the players have done a really good job getting out there and trying to sell that message. And it's working, honestly, it is working. The average fan isn't even going to hear about a lot of this, but it's working among the people who play the most attention to baseball and it's working on the sort of 
baseball information ecosphere is right now blaming the owners almost universally. And so I think that's a really good thing. And, you know, there are people who are like, well, and the owners are trying to make this argument. We don't make much revenue. Like, yeah, the value of our teams, but we don't make much revenue. That's bullshit too, right? Like I I was listening to a podcast just the other day and I want to say it was either the athletic baseball podcast or fan graphs, effectively wild one or the other. And they were talking about, this person was talking about the reporting that they'd done. There's very little public information from baseball on like revenues, but what we know is, Oh no, no, I'm sorry. It was, it was Royals review radio that I was listening to with Alex Duvall and a few others. And they said that the very, like before they even sell a ticket, all major league baseball teams, make a hundred million dollars. They split right? that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They make a hundred million dollars. There's the pirates, their payroll is going to be one third of a hundred million dollars this year. That's before they even sell a ticket. And so, you know, that they're going to make money this year. You know, that the Dodgers are going to make money this year. You know, that the, every baseball team is going to make a significant amount of money in revenue this year. It's going to happen. They will all be profitable. Then add on top of that, the fact that their the value of their team goes up every single year by a lot, a lot. Okay. And so they're making money hand over fist. No doubt about that. The question is, are they so short-sighted that they're going to be willing to sort of harm the long-term viability of the game to just make a little bit more? I think that's the ultimate question. Are you willing to harm the long-term viability of baseball so that your 200, 300, $400 million profit is a $450 million profit instead? We'll end this episode like we end every episode with our Just About Outside segment, where we talk about something that's interesting to us outside the world of baseball. Mike, what do you got that's been keeping your interest outside the world of baseball, which is basically just the world because there is no world of baseball right now? Yeah, uh, outside the world of baseball is literally everything. Ted Danson. Yeah, I said it, folks. This Danza. is a Ted Danzen. It's Ted. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Tony Danza. Yes, I am. Talking about it's, Ted Danson. It's Ted right? Dan's son. Not with a Z. Ted he's Dan's got a son. He's got it spelled with a Z in here, like some sort of Ted Danson. You know, All right. First literate. He's dancing. Guys, dancing to the tune of, of a billion dollars. And I, I started thinking today because uh, yesterday I started rewatching uh, Mr. Mayor. I don't know if you ever watched that show. I've never seen it. Oh my God, it is fantastic sitcom stuff. Okay, I highly recommend it. I know it's on Hulu. Check it out. It's Ted Danson, Ted Danson's latest masterpiece in the sitcom realm. And so I started thinking, like, is he the greatest comedic actor of all time? Hmm. He might be the greatest comedic actor of all time. Cheers. Okay, boom. Becker, how about that? The Good Place. And now Mr. Mayor, all four of them are bangers. Okay. And that doesn't even go into his movie career, which he had some hits, you know, three men and a baby. He did some good stuff there as well. But Ted Danson does not get enough credit as perhaps the greatest comedic actor of all time. Now, I wonder, I, will if, throw I, wonder if, I wonder if he would uh, accept the characterization of comedic actor. I know he's not like trained as a comedian. So I think he might just consider himself an actor. Well, I don't know, but the comedies the man has made have, are phenomenal okay i mean cheers come on cheers is great i hear the theme the song for it all the time for some reason the good that place show is universally loved 
there's there's sitcoms and then there's the good place which is an entirely different thing going on like if you never watched it it is frigging amazing exactly remember uh, becker becker was a great show becker, becker was a solid sitcom i watched exactly. it quite a bit uh, and and i really i'm telling you mr mayor is great there's only one season of it and then covid hit or no they kind of made it um during slash post covid i think it was during covid but he is phenomenal the only other person and i was talking to morgan about this my wife and i you know she doesn't know any of these people so really i'm really kind of just using her as a sounding board but <laughs> Julia Louis, was it Julia Louis Dreyfus? Yeah, she would be in that conversation as well. Too hugely successful. Well, uh, and then uh, what is it? Uh, the New Adventures of Old Christine was that the one she was? Oh yeah. I so about she's that. been in a few that were really good, and two that were just unbelievable in Seinfeld yeah. and Veep. So she would definitely be in that conversation. But I think he's if there's a Mount Rushmore of of comedic actors, Ted Danson is on that thing. And you're not, yeah. you can't argue otherwise to this guy. You know? Definitely, definitely TV comedies. I mean, there's nobody who's going to, that track record of success would probably be unmatched. But, you know, I think, think about how many decades. Think about like Will Ferrell and Seth Rogen and for movies is probably slightly different, you know. No. Uh, but, you know, still amazing. Ted Danson will, will, Get no slight from at the, from this podcast. I'll tell you that right now. No, this is a Ted Danson appreciation podcast. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We will, we for, will pivot to that in a sure. second. We, will, <laughs> if the lockout continues, we're just going to pivot to Ted Danson. We'll be, we'll be doing a Ted Danson appreciation it's, podcast. It's worked for four different sitcoms. We're just pivoting to Ted Danson. Well, just think uh, about that: eighties, nineties, early two thousands, and teens. He the guy. The guy has done it forever. Nobody plays exasperated funnier than Ted Danson. Like Becker, <laughs> when he's just like completely fe- like done with everybody, is hilarious. So yeah, that's true. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about another funny thing, actually, a, a very funny thing, uh, and that is uh, we brought this up one time before on the show, and that's crypto. Uh, I'm talking about crypto Schadenfreude, which I've had all week this week reading uh, various crypto. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have stories. to read, raise my hand here. Don't know what Schadenfreude is. Don't speak Schaden, German. Uh, Schadenfreude is a ger- everybody knows what Schadenfreude. It's more an American term at this point. Uh, nobody, uh, sh- literally nobody, knows what Schadenfreude is. Okay? Schaden, Schadenfreude is a German word where you take pleasure in someone else's misery or misfortune. Oh, uh, and so I, I understand the concept greatly. Just didn't yeah. know the word. <laughs> yeah, uh, Schadenfreude. For those of you who need a new a new word, but. So if you don't know, over the course of the last month or so, crypto has like dumped a, a fourth or a third of its value. It's dropping like a stone or it dropped like a stone there for a while. And I just reading all these different stories about people like, uh, you know, losing money or like, yeah, the, the one that I read today was incredible, an incredible story in the New York Times about a, a crypto theft that took place in 2016. Saw did you that. read this? Did you read this story? I, I didn't read oh. that. For, I didn't read the one from them, but I saw, I know what you're talking about. Okay. It's incredible. Back in 2016, somebody stole a, what was then $74 million worth of Bitcoin from this Bitcoin exchange. And just yesterday, I think two people two were arrested two days ago, two people were arrested for trying to launder that money, right? Now, what's really interesting is they tried to launder it, but they were struggling to do it because it's fucking Bitcoin. So even though it's <laughs> even though it's technically so worth- the, the problem that like everybody has with Bitcoin. Yeah, like, exactly. So even like, though it's, it's technically worth like $36 billion now, no, no, it was like Most, it was like almost it was three point some billion. That, yeah. That's what it was. Three point six billion, not thirty six. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Three point six billion dollars. Now they still had a bunch of it. Like they still had ninety percent of the Bitcoin that they had 
that was, I guess they, I guess they, it's unclear whether they stole it or not, or if they were just attempting to launder it. Um, but it's just this weird, wacky story. I just have nothing but uh, interesting schadenfreude. And I know maybe I should probably not good to sort of laugh at people's misery, but to me, if you're the type of person who, uh, who's like, especially like, I, I, I do have sympathy for like people who just sort of got into crypto because they thought it was a good idea. I don't have sympathy for like, crypto bros who were all like oh you're just stupid if you don't get it you know you just no i have no sympathy for those people and so you know i'm just having a little crypto shout and afraid of watching watching a financial market that makes absolutely no sense burn to the ground i don't, and, I don't know that it did burn to the, i don't know that it it's did. going to burn it, to the ground yet, no, no, but... no 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 don't get me wrong i'm not saying like oh crypto will never go back up or anything like that it'll you know there's a reason there's a saying a sucker is born every minute the whole idea is that these scams will be self-perpetuating pyramid schemes have been around for centuries and they still work and that's essentially what crypto is it's just a very large very successful pyramid scheme and so what i love to see is like the notion that Every once in a while, we actually sit up and acknowledge the fact that that's what it is. And yet, for some reason, we don't do anything about it. Okay. Yep. It's a it's a big pyramid scheme that people are going to keep getting into. And then you see like Matt Damon going out and that just crushed my heart. Like he's he's doing crypto commercials. And I'm like, this is the saddest thing I've ever seen. That's all we have for this week. <laughs> Mark's typically positive message to end all of our shows. I tell you, <laughs> you let, leave people wanting more, doesn't they? <laughs> That's all we have for this week. Uh, <laughs> Next time, who knows when that will be. Uh, by the way, the, entire listenership. Hope you're not into crypto. Uh, 100 followers. We just went down to like 12. But <laughs> I, I, I got I to be 100% honest with you. If you're into crypto, I'd rather you not listen. <laughs> I'd rather you not. Because, you know, I don't want to cultivate that kind of community here. If you're I, into I really crypto, don't. don't listen. If you're into Ted Dancing, we want you back we again. We want you here. Right? We want you here every week. We want okay. you. We'll, we'll Those things don't week. overlap. So we know we're good. Yeah. Okay. No, there are no. Everybody who's into crypto doesn't know who Ted Danson is. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. Uh, if you are into crypto, just know that I don't think you're a bad person or, or, or not smart or anything. But you should definitely get your money out of crypto. Um, and, and stop listening, please. <laughs> and, and please stop listening. <laughs> we'll see you next time. It'll probably be, I don't even know. It depends on when they start spring training. If they start spring training in early March, we'll come back in early March, start to kick off and do some stuff. Mike's may not be here because he's got like a baby coming or something. Um, but <laughs> hey, we got uh, a name, man. Yeah, I know. Oh yeah. I texted oh, you that. I forgot. Do you want to tell the world or are we keeping <laughs> nah, that a secret? We're not, no, I'm not letting you people spy on my kid. Probably have a bunch of crypto bros trying to dox yeah. my child or something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so Mike's going to have a baby in early March. We may have to cycle through some guest hosts or something until he gets his head on. Right. And uh, figures out a way to, uh, to, to manage all his time, but we'll, we will definitely be back sometime soon with more Royals weekly until then be good to each other and go Royals. <laughs>